0: Sure. I'm Tim Gagline, and I'm one of the vice presidents at Focus on the Family.
1: So we're in a very interesting place right now in terms of the relationship between the U.S. political system and the evangelical church. Can you just briefly describe that for us?
0: Yeah, interesting is a good word. Uh, I would have to say that of my nearly 25 years in Washington, I have never seen a relationship Uh, between broadly defined American evangelicals uh, and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And I think what we have learned and what I'm seeing literally every day living and working in Washington uh, is a confirmation of the reality that American evangelicalism is not of one piece. Not that it ever has been of one piece, but I think it was euphemistically acceptable uh, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, in the 90s, in the two, early 2000s, to say this is what American evangelicals are thinking. Uh, this is what evangelicals will probably do. Uh, I think that that is really a big mistake. American evangelicalism uh, in everyday, uh, workaday Washington uh, is not monochromatic, it's not monolithic. And increasingly, you can assume that it's possible to put your proverbial finger on the pulse, but you'll soon be frustrated.
1: Having having said that, though, if we think specifically about white evangelicals, who are not all of the evangelicals in this country, clearly, but a good 80% of them, the polls tell us, voted for Trump, and many of those people continue to support him. So that's a really um, compelling relationship, isn't it?
0: It's a very large, but I might say almost predictable demographic thus far. You know, I worked uh, through two very hard-fought presidential elections for President George W. Bush, and I was one of the primary outreach touchstones for President Bush with, broadly speaking, Evangelical America. I worked with black evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals, white evangelicals, uh maybe all the other adjectives you know uh, that that describe american evangelicalism but even with george w bush uh, not that it was predictable not that you ever took anything for granted but large percentages of self-identified american evangelicals voted for george w bush uh, not once but twice um they voted for Mitt Romney in very large numbers uh Mitt Romney being the first uh decidedly uh uh, Mormon uh, GOP candidate for the presidency and I don't think that that's anomalous I wasn't surprised I can honestly say that my phone lines were burning off the hooks you know how can American evangelicals support Mitt Romney or in the primary will they support him Uh, that was probably the most commonly asked question uh, and not because I had particular insight uh, or anything else, but experience told me that if it was, after a hard-fought primary, uh, if, if it was a Mormon who was going to be the prime GOP presidential candidate, uh, that significant numbers of evangelical Christians almost predictably probably would support that candidate.
1: You mentioned the journey through the seventies, eighties, nineties. Let's walk back to that. I, I can remember the seventies, and I remember the time um, when the evangelical church was really quite separate. You know, there was there was a virtue in being set apart, um, that we're in the world but not of the world. All of these things, and there was a very specific movement in the seventies, wasn't there, to encourage those Christians to engage with the public square.
0: May I say, I learned very early in American politics, and I'm confirming the point that you so eloquently raise, that anecdotes are not statistics. Uh, and it is absolutely uh, you know, data-driven uh, that uh, really uh, up to and including the mid-1970s, self-identified American evangelicals uh, uh, in very large numbers chose not to participate in very large numbers Uh, in American politics there was a definable in the evangelical broadly defined subculture a kind of separatism uh, that you are in the world you're not of the world it's a dirty process don't get involved you have an important um, uh, witness that is quite apart from the public square and what happened uh, in America is that in 1973 Uh, our Supreme Court um, uh, legalized and some would say imposed uh, abortion legal in all nine months up to and including the birth of the child uh, in the Roe v. Wade decision. This in large numbers brought American evangelicals into the public square. In part, there were a series of other issues in that social and moral revolution of the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s that came on the radar scope of American evangelicals for the first time. One other thing that I think is very important, many American evangelicals did not define themselves as such. They refer to themselves as fundamentalists. They refer to themselves as apostolics or Pentecostals or disaffected mainline Christians. So when we talk about evangelical Christians, hand over heart, I'm just always a little careful because what evangelical America, white evangelical America means in 2018 is not what it meant uh, in 1997 or 1987. One other comment if I may, Um, in broad dissatisfaction with what was happening in America's social revolution, uh, there were groups, there were individuals who matched that dissatisfaction uh, with new uh, political uh, action committees, the moral majority. Uh, there, were, there was an explosion of, uh, for the first time, uh, cable or satellite television. Uh, and the use of broadening this dissatisfaction and kind of concretizing it into television programs, radio programs. In other words, it was no longer kind of a niche uh, uh, magazine culture or the occasional newsletter. So this is all very important to the way that, in my opinion, American evangelicalism grew up and grew into the public square.
1: That's Start with that, then the media side of things, because um, I'd, I'd love you just to unpack for us what media consumption looks like for many, especially non-Washington evangelicals or Christians in the states, and how they can engage with messages that perhaps reinforce what they're already thinking.
0: You know, uh, I am so thrilled that you are asking this question because my answer is going to be extremely counterintuitive. There has been, really for the last 50 years in American politics, a gigantic misunderstanding on the part of what you and I would call mainline media. And by the way, uh, I, you know, I have a good relationship uh, with uh, you know, uh, much of mainline media who doesn't necessarily share my worldview, but they're good friends and, and, and we have a good ongoing conversation one of the things that they did not and do not understand is how remarkably sophisticated American evangelicals are technologically. American evangelicals looked at CBS, they looked at NBC, they looked at ABC, the the, the primary American networks before the advent of cable and satellite, and what they did ingeniously, I might add, is they mimicked that model and found a new way to use it to advance what you and I would call a more conservative, uh, a more Christian conservative outlook. So what you have uh, beginning in the 1970s, 80s, 90s is you have very significant figures in television, in radio who are using successful mainline, mainstream models They are readapting those models, and they are using it to get the word out. Um, And and may I say, this applies to 2018. Uh, I was very recently with what you and I would call a a very significant big media figure. And uh, it was her understanding that somehow American evangelicals were a little bit behind in the area of social media, Well, we spent uh, uh, several days together actually looking at what you and I would call some of the larger uh, sort of evangelical institutions. The conclusion when it was all said and done is that not only is American evangelicalism way ahead of the wave, but that the counterparts that she could think of on the left were maybe 20 years behind. And I don't think that that's unusual. Uh, American evangelicals have always found a way to reform it in order to preserve it. Reform is in the DNA and in the marrow um, of what is often orthodox or doctrinal Christianity broadly defined. Uh, one other comment, if I may, it is common in America, whether you're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or in the, the suburbs of New York, Philadelphia, Washington, and Los Angeles, to go to large what we call mega church uh, evangelical churches and to find them looking like the 21st century and i might say looking like the 22nd century there's broad discussion in america about evangelicalism without bricks and mortar and what will that mean Uh, a creation of community virtually and what will that mean so i'm actually quite hopeful And I feel very strongly that the models we're talking about are going to fit into the matrix of how politics is done in America.
1: It's kind of the current equivalent, isn't it, of that, um, was it the 50s or 60s rock and roll thing? Why should the devil have all the good music? So reclaiming the the public space.
0: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that fits in precisely with white evangelicalism in America. It also fits in with black evangelicalism in America, which is... In America, the primary music, the primary cultural touchstone for multiple millions of evangelical millennial uh, Christians, is uh, Christian contemporary rock music. In its in its early derivations, it you know it wasn't Elvis Presley, it wasn't the Stones, it wasn't the Beatles but as early as the 1970s and 80s, you can look at some of this new music, so-called new music, and all of a sudden, uh, it's uh, rock and roll, and we're not singing anymore about you know a beautiful woman or a handsome man or a nice-looking car. We're, we're, we're singing about Jesus Christ. We're singing you know, ev- themes that are very comfortable within the evangelical matrix, but they sound like rock and roll. And that's just exactly what I'm talking about. And that fits into uh, this larger discussion, because I think that many evangelicals are not made for politics, but they are made for culture. They understand culture. They understand that culture comes before politics. And I think this is also one of the things, broadly defined, that the left does not completely comprehend about evangelicals in America.
1: You mentioned the shift in the 1970s around some big organizations and structures which mobilized Christians, particularly evangelicals, to engage. Um, Are we seeing the heritage of some of those organizations and movements specifically today?
0: Most definitely. Uh, I would say that it was the foresight, the information, uh, the, the, the vision of many of these evangelicals in the 70s and 80s that have brought us to this point in American politics. Uh, their goal, categorically, without any exception, as different as they were as individuals and institutions, the number one goal that they had in the 1970s and 80s was to wake up what they viewed as a sleeping, gigantic part of the American demographic, move them to the center-right to put on their radar scope the centrality of marriage, family, parenting, pro-life, religious liberty, conscience issues, and then uh, in a phrase that was used very widely beginning in the 90s, to vote their values. And I think that uh, uh, we, have, we have seen uh, now this gigantic split between white evangelicals and what you and I would call the American conservative movement. Many of the leaders, many of the thought leaders of the American conservative movement who are not necessarily moral or cultural conservatives, but who always uh, wanted mass attending Catholics and conservative evangelicals as part of that coalition, for the first time when it comes to President Trump, there is a definable split between the thought leaders of American conservatism, and between the leaders, broadly speaking, of Evangelical America, and I don't think it—it's it, not—it's not acrimonious. It's not everyday, you know, uh, proverbial uh, shouting or screaming or whatever. But it's an understanding that uh, American evangelicals do not hew, by and large. Uh, up against the odds that they see themselves in in 21st century America uh, to issues that they see as increasingly tangential to to what they view as the central issues. And the central issues have become many of the ones that we saw uh, battled uh, for in the 2016 presidential election. You know, it's not a coincidence that the Supreme Court came up all the time, that federal judges came up all the time, uh, that what kind of a Health and Human Services Department, which is a very large domestic agency in our country, how are you gonna staff that place? Where are you going to expend those funds? Uh, This is all very significant.
1: And there are individuals, political appointments that, this, that President Trump has made, aren't there, um, who come from that base, something the vice president, obviously, the education secretary. Um, there are very key appointments who represent this demographic.
0: Uh, I'll put that in a very slim phrase. Uh, uh, in presidential politics, personnel is policy. Policy is policy, but personnel is policy. And American evangelicals look at this landscape of the the Trump-Pence administration. And they say, first, what is the first major personnel choice that President Trump made? He chose uh, one of the most prominent evangelicals in all of American elected politics, the governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, a former member of the House of Representatives, uh, to be his vice president. Uh, He selected uh, Jeff Sessions, senator of Alabama, uh, you know, a prominent evangelical. Uh, to be his uh, uh, attorney general, uh, you know, when he when it came to the selection of his uh, Supreme Court justice, when it came to the selection of those early federal judges. You know, they may or may not have been evangelical Christians, but they were broadly seen as men and women who were simpatico, who were comfortable with uh, strict construction uh, and the interpretation of the Constitution, uh, what we call textualism in the Scalia mode. And I, and I wanna get into this for one moment because I think this is perhaps the most important part of our, of our dialogue. I would argue that the most important reason that American evangelicals came out in such large numbers for Donald Trump was because of the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. And it wasn't just that, that, that people were having a discussion about what kind of a Supreme Court justice would you want to have. But people understood this was without any peer on the domestic front, the most important a personnel decision in the judicial branch of the American government that this president would be making. And it was a stark binary choice. Do you want Hillary Clinton making that decision, or do you want Donald Trump making that decision? And for millions of evangelical Christians who may not have been a supporter of Donald Trump, who may have said, I wanted somebody else, they were willing to say, despite what any reservations I may have, I understand that that vacancy is real. There are only nine of them on the Supreme Court, and I'm going to cast a vote of trust that Donald Trump will keep his pledge and will support someone and will nominate to the Supreme Court someone in the vein of, of Antonin Scalia. And of course, he did that in the first year. And for millions and millions and millions of evangelicals who were not Trump supporters, they weren't never Trump supporters, but they weren't primarily Donald Trump supporters. Right? This is the group that doesn't get much attention. There's the Trump supporters, that, that 35% of the base. Right. There are the never-Trumpers. But I am primarily, in my work, very interested in the people between those two parentheses because they're really important in, uh, in all of American elected politics. And I would argue very strongly, vociferously, that in the midterm elections— this November in the presidential election of 2020, it is that group that is the one to watch.
1: You just mentioned Scalia. Name and explain for us, those of us outside of the US, the core issue there that people were really passionate about.
0: The number one issue in the replacement of the late, and some would say the late great Justice Antonin Scalia, was a view of the Constitution that the words have a fixed meaning that they, it's not a living constitution. It doesn't change with, sta- with fads and styles, that it has a fixed meaning, and that overwhelmingly, and I'm speaking very broadly, American conservatives, for all of the differences that American conservatives have, the one thing, and there may be only one, the one thing that American conservatives agree on is a fixed meaning of the constitution, and it's the thing that unites the right, and I would argue that this is why Donald Trump made the Supreme Court such a central issue in this debate. And, and, those, and those core issues are the right to human life uh, and the definition of marriage and religious liberty and rights of conscience. Broadly speaking, with all evangelicals, those who are never Trump people, those who are central Trump voters, and those who kind of fall in the middle every single one of them in the policy matrix would put human life religious liberty and conscience and marriage family parenting issues would put them probably somewhere in the top 10. And when you think of the enormous number of issues that the Supreme Court deals with you know that is a pretty tight focus.
1: And you meant you, you um, attribute the beginning of this mass engagement um, to 1973 Roe vs. Wade. So when you say human life, what does that mean here?
0: What it means is that before 1973 in the United States of America, all 50 states had a, a disparate view of abortion. Some states like California and New York and New Jersey had much more liberal or progressive views of the legality of abortion. Many other states had a very strict view of abortion. What Roe against Wade decided is that all 50 states uh, had to uniformly allow abortion up to and including the the ninth month of pregnancy. This riveted the country. And in a series of other decisions in the 1960s, uh, the school prayer decisions, for instance, and, and, and many others, the Supreme Court was becoming a major issue Needless to say, long before 1973. But 1973, 74, 75 thereafter galvanizes a new movement. By the way, there's irony. The irony is that overwhelmingly, most evangelical Christians in 1973 in the United States, they viewed abortion as a Catholic issue, not as a so-called Protestant or evangelical issue. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest American Protestant denomination, uh, in a resolution after Roe against Wade in 1973 or 1974, actually had a convention uh, resolution that said that abortion was acceptable. And now they are overwhelmingly in opposition. Also, several, and I do mean several, of the earliest pro-life groups were actually progressive and socially left-wing. So there has been this enormous change, and this is why I say that trying to understand American evangelicals in America is particularly difficult ideologically, because there is so much distinction and change, uh, almost city block by city block.
1: So are you saying that the anti-abortion vote won Trump the presidency?
0: I would argue this way. I would argue that the pro-life vote comprised of mass-attending Catholics, uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, evangelical Christians, broadly speaking, uh, and conservative mainline Christians were integral uh, to the election of Donald Trump. I would argue that the pro-life cause for those who care about domestic politics was very high on their list, but I would not say it was categorical. Uh, I would say it was a matrix of issues after the Obama, years and in light of uh, of mrs clinton and and i know that that seems a much more amorphous emotional reaction but more than any presidential election of my lifetime and i think in part this is why all the polls the most reliable polls were so uniformly wrong is that i think that that there was an emotional quotient in this election Uh, Many people voting against the other candidate, voting against Hillary Clinton or voting against Donald Trump that that I think was very unique in American politics. I do put the pro-life movement as very central uh, for evangelicals, mass-attending Catholics, no doubt the the pro-life issue as it ties to Justice Scalia and the empty seat on the Supreme Court, very, very important but I do believe that, that there were uh, uh, several other important trends and issues and, and, and sort of an emotional um, bent that was central to his election.
1: Sufficient to, to overlook some of the other things that he said himself, his use of language, his way of commenting about refugees, about how women look, for example, mm-hmm. and things that we know about his personal life. So his values vote, as mm-hmm. you would say, mm-hmm overrode all of those other moral probity considerations?
0: You know, I really believe that if the opposing candidate were not Hillary Clinton, where where Bill and Hillary Clinton, and I say this respectfully of his presidency, because it's about the office, they brought a lot of baggage. And it wasn't, frankly, uh, just the sort of overlooking of Donald Trump's you know, values uh, or, or the challenges that, that, you know, that people you know, rightfully mention. But I think that it was uh, her use of language referring to some people as a basket of deplorables, right? Uh, the echoes of, of, of some of the things that were said uh, in the campaign, which, which frankly wasn't particularly good rhetoric regardless of which side you're on. So I, I think that, that in, in a non-parliamentary democracy, where for a lot of people there's a binary choice, uh, most people made one of two choices. I will vote for Donald Trump or I will vote for a third-party candidate. And I think uh, many, of, many uh, large numbers of my evangelical friends who did not vote for President Trump they knew that they were investing their vote in a third party candidate, and they knew that, that that there was no circumstance under which that candidate could have won.
1: And so what do you think Trump brings to the presidency in terms of values and uh, his relationship, the, the country's relationship with the church? What do you think that Trump has to offer?
0: Uh, for me, it's a question uh, uh, of what kind of policies, And what kind of personnel uh, has the Trump-Pence White House given to us? And I have to say, I think that as an evangelical, I look at places like the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. This is our largest domestic agency. It has an enormous sway over religious liberty and conscience issues. It has a huge sway over pro-life and family and marriage issues. Uh, It has been the strongest HHS in the history of that department. I know that's a big uh, uh, answer, but it also has the value of being true, Uh, both in personnel and in policy. I mean, it's really remarkable. Uh, Also, with regard to the future of the Supreme Court and with regard to the future of both our appellate and district courts, these are the most senior federal courts in the United States of America with no exceptions, this administration has chosen an outstanding Supreme Court justice, and I have faith with, with more very good justices potentially to come, and also with no exceptions, an outstanding selection of federal judges. You know, long after Donald Trump is president, we may be two, three, or four presidencies down the line by then, any president's biggest domestic legacy is almost always the court's because in America, if you are 40 years old, if you're 45, you know, well under 50, and you live a long time, you may be on that court for four decades. That is an enormous legacy. Uh, you know, we are still, in the Supreme Court, we are still dealing with justices who were appointed by Ronald Reagan. You know, uh, for a lot of people who may be listening, that seems, you know, many galaxies ago. Uh, I remember when my parents used to speak of FDR and Truman, right? But so, so I think in the, on the primary goal of can we get outstanding policies for human life, for conscience, for family, uh, f- and, and the way that the courts define this, I think you know, this has been a very good first year. And with regard to policy, I think it's excellent.